We're going to end up this morning in Luke 3, but before we turn to Luke 3, if you will turn with me once more to the Gospel of John and chapter 1. John chapter 1. We began last week in John 1, meditating on the words of John the Baptist, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And this morning I want to pick that theme back up here in John's Gospel, chapter 1, and beginning in verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, I just want particularly, again, to draw your attention to John's words in verses 26 and 27. I baptize in water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And I want you to turn over now into the Gospel of Luke to chapter 3, where we find John's words that we just read in John 1, recorded even a little more fully here in verses 15 through 17 of Luke 3. And this is where we'll focus our attention now for the rest of our time. Luke 3.15, Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Father, as we consider these words of John about himself and about Jesus, we pray that you give us the heart of John to point beyond ourselves, away from ourselves, to one who is mightier than us. We pray that you would point us to that one, your son Jesus, this morning. And we ask in his name. Amen. As for me, verse 16, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Those are profoundly revealing words. Uh, 
not only for what they say to us, most importantly, about the ministry of Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, but these words are also revealing when it comes to us understanding the heart and the humility of John himself. The humility of John the Baptist. That's the first of three things that I really want you to notice in this passage this morning. John's humility. Now we looked briefly at John's modesty last week. Actually, we looked at it a little more than briefly. And we heard him saying to the gathered crowds, I am not the Christ. I am not the prophet. I'm not the one you've been waiting for. I'm not the main attraction here. No, I'm simply a voice, he said. I'm just a mouthpiece. I'm merely the no-name herald who goes before the king blowing the trumpet and announcing that someone far more important is coming down the road. Here is the man whom Jesus called the greatest of all the men of the old era, intentionally downplaying his own importance. Not because he was, in fact, unimportant, but because in comparison with the one whose way he had been sent to prepare, John knew that he was just a blip on the radar screen. That was John chapter 1. And then in this passage today, John continues that self-effacement, that minimizing of himself, the groomsman, in the shadow of the groom whom he has come to attend. In fact, this humility, this minimization of himself that we read here and maximization of Jesus is really the main theme of this passage, of this verse that we're considering this morning. As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is a humble man. And did you notice the two-sided coin of John's humility? On the one hand, John is diffident about himself. My baptism, baptism is just the water kind, he says. It's just the symbol. Indeed, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' shoes. John effaces himself. But that effacing of himself is not the sum total of true Christian humility. True Christian humility is not simply that we efface ourselves, that we think humbly and lowly of ourselves, but true Christian humility is also, and perhaps even more so, that we think extremely highly about Jesus. So John downplays himself, but he also upplays the Lord Jesus Christ. As for me, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's true Christian humility. Not only thinking about yourself modestly, thinking about your place in the grand scheme of things modestly, thinking about your own abilities modestly, but just as importantly and probably more so thinking highly of the work and the place and the person and the abilities of Jesus. One is coming who is mightier than I. That's Christian humility, a low and a right view of self coupled with a high view of Jesus. And as we think about John's humility here, I find one phrase in verse 16, perhaps most striking of all. I, he says, am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. Now that sounds somewhat impressive to us, even just on the surface of things, doesn't it? 
I'm not fit to bend down and untie Jesus' shoes for him. But that's an even more startling sentence when you understand the cultural background behind it. Because when you look up the background behind untying someone's sandals, as I did in the New American Commentary on Luke by a guy named Robert Stein, as I read there, I found something very interesting and I hope helpful to you. Namely, that having to untie a person's sandals was in those ancient times one of the lowliest and most demeaning tasks that you could ever be forced or asked to do. I don't fully understand why this thing was so lowly. I don't understand why this was so much of a taboo, but it was a very real taboo in first century Jewish culture. The task of untying someone else's sandals was so low that only slaves were ever asked to do such a thing. And not all slaves, only non-Jewish slaves, only Gentile slaves who were probably considered second-class citizens at best ever had to stoop this low to untie someone's sandals. I don't even know if we have a taboo like this in our culture. Maybe you could picture yourself being forced to actually literally kiss the soles of someone's sweaty, smelly feet. Untying another person's sandals in that culture would have been absolutely demeaning and disgusting to them. And yet here is John whom Jesus in Matthew 11, again called the greatest prophet of the pre-church era, here is John saying, I'm not even good enough to do that for Jesus. Or in our vernacular, I'm not even worthy to bend down and kiss his feet. I'm not even worthy to clean underneath his toenails. That's too high a privilege for me to undertake. John is not exactly the portrait of modern Western self-esteem, is he? But while self-esteem is far from the top of the Bible's list of virtues, I want you to see that John's words here are not reflective of a particularly low view of himself, but of the fact that he had such a high view of Jesus. This isn't John just beating himself up and thinking he's absolutely scum and worthless. In fact, if you read on in Luke 3, you will find that while John didn't deem himself fit to untie Jesus' shoes. He had no hesitation about walking into the presence of Herod the Tetrarch and preaching at him about his adultery. So it wasn't that John is beating himself up. It isn't that he has some sort of inferiority complex that he's not willing to do anything because he thinks so poorly of himself. It's not an inferiority complex that has John saying that he's not unfit to tie that he's not fit to tie Jesus sandals. It's a superiority complex about Jesus. John saw Jesus for who he really is and all of his might and all of his power and all of his wisdom and all of his glory and all of his authority and as great as John was, he knew that he was just a lightning bug in comparison with Jesus. And this is the essence of true Christian humility. Not only that we must have an appropriately modest estimate of ourselves and not think too highly of ourselves and realize our deficiencies and our limitations and our sins, but also and especially where God has gifted us, we must always see ourselves in the shadow of Christ who is so far greater than us that we aren't even worthy to bend down and untie his shoes. 
It's His glory that all of our gifts are intended to serve. Some of us may be well be gifted, not like John the Baptist, but many of us have been gifted extraordinarily in different ways. Maybe for you it's with physical talents that God has given you or resources that God's put into your hands or mental capabilities or authority in certain spheres of influence. All of us have some gifts from God and we should use those gifts instead of burying them in the sand in a kind of faux humility. But the point is, gifted as we may be, let us, like John, remember that in comparison with Jesus, who is the bright morning star, we're just fireflies. That was John's heartbeat. That was the humility of John the Baptist. Great as God had made him and important as his part was in the grand scheme of things, he is best known for his humility. He is best known for sentences like this one. As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. Now, as you heard there, part of John's reason for humility was the comparison between his baptizing ministry and the baptism that Jesus could give. So let's think a little more in depth under a second heading. Not only the humility of John, but let's think about the baptism of John. I baptize you with water, he says. Now that was, of course, the other great part of John's ministry. We talked last week about the greatest part of his ministry. The greatest part of John's ministry was that God had sent him to be a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. God had sent him to be a preacher. But God also sent John, here in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, into all the desert, or all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John came to preach, and John also came to baptize. And to do the latter, he tells us in verse 16, with Water. I baptize you with water. What is water baptism about? Why was this important for John to do? What does water baptism mean or accomplish or signify? Well, Luke tells us there in verse 3 that John's water baptism was about repentance and about the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Which means that John's baptism had at least partially the same emphasis as our own water baptisms do today. It's not exactly the same, but there are similarities. Christian baptism, you may recall from the times when we've had occasion to observe it and from the Romans 6 explanation that I usually give on those occasions, Christian baptism is a picture of a radical change that has happened in an individual's life. A death and a rebirth that has taken place. When a person is dipped below the surface of the water, the picture is that of burial. The old sinful man has been buried with Jesus. The old sinful nature has been dealt a death blow. And the old sinful habits begin to die off with the sinful nature. And then when the new convert is raised 
out of the water, new life in Christ is in view. Just as the body is raised out of the water, so the soul has been raised from the dead, having been born again by the Holy Spirit, so that a new life of faith and obedience begins to take shape. So baptism is a picture of what has happened to the soul. We do with our bodies physically what has been done with our souls. The old is buried and done away, and behold, new life has been born. That's Christian baptism. Now, John's baptism doesn't seem to have encompassed the entirety of what we mean when we speak of baptism today. There's not the same emphasis in Luke 3, 3 on this new life with Jesus that we find later emphasized in the New Testament. But John's emphasis on repentance does fit quite well with the burial portion of baptism. John was calling people to die to their old selves and to their sins, wasn't he? He was calling them to repentance and to be buried as a symbol of that deadness to sin in the waters of baptism. It's also possible in this older form of baptism that the water was meant to symbolize the washing away of sins for those who repent. He preached a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So John's baptism, while it was not the exact equivalent of what we call Christian baptism, was similar in some important ways. But I want to point out to you that in one way, John's baptism and ours are exactly the same. Namely, that both of them are symbols. Both of them are symbols. In other words, water baptism by itself doesn't actually crucify you with Christ, does it? The water itself doesn't bury your old sinful nature. The water itself doesn't affect new life when you come out of it either. Neither the water, nor the hands of the minister, nor the words that he pronounces over you have any magical or saving quality in and of themselves. They're symbols. God has to do the saving. And we just come along in baptism and reenact it with public visual aids. And the same thing was true of John's baptism. His dunking the people in the water didn't effect repentance. It didn't create repentance in their heart. It merely symbolized what was already taking place in their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And similarly, the waters of the Jordan River certainly didn't wash away anyone's sins. They merely symbolized the washing that the Holy Spirit does with the blood of the Lamb. John's baptism was just a symbol. In fact, that's exactly what he's getting at, I think, when he says, I baptize you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is drawing attention to the low level on which he's actually operating. He was working only with the outward signs. But one was coming who would actually do the real thing. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says, I can help you reenact what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, but Jesus is the one who actually sends the Holy Spirit to do it. Jesus is the one who actually immerses you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is doing the real thing. I'm just reenacting. Now, don't misunderstand. The reenacting is important. That's why John was busy doing it. 
That's why people were traveling out into the wilderness to be baptized by him. That's why we place emphasis on baptism and the Lord's Supper even until this day. The symbols are important, but John recognizes, and so should we, that the symbol is not really nearly as important as the real thing. And therefore, the hands that perform the symbol, whether they're John's hands or my hands or anyone else's hands, are not nearly as great as those nail-pierced hands who actually dip us into the Holy Spirit. That's what John is getting at. He's again showing us his humility. I baptize you with water, and that's great, and that's important, but someone is coming who is far greater than me, and he'll actually do the real thing. He will actually immerse you in the power of the Holy Spirit. J.C. Ryle, in his expository thoughts on the Gospel of Luke, has a wonderful meditation on the contrast that John is making here between his baptism and that of Jesus. Commenting on the King James Version of Luke 3.16, he says this, We learn from these verses the essential difference between the Lord Jesus and even the best and holiest of his ministers. We have it in the solemn words of John the Baptist, I indeed baptize you with water, he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Man, Ryle says, when ordained, can administer the outward ordinances of Christianity with a prayerful hope that God will graciously bless the means which he himself has appointed. But man cannot read the hearts of those to whom he ministers. He can preach the gospel faithfully to their ears, but he cannot make them receive it into their consciences. He can apply the baptismal water, but he cannot cleanse their inward nature. He can give the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper into their hands, but he cannot enable them to eat Christ's body and blood by faith. Up to a certain point he can go, but no further. No ordination, however solemnly conferred, can give man power to change the heart. Christ The great head of the church can alone do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is his peculiar office to do it, and it is an office which he has delegated to no child of man. He can apply the baptismal water, but he cannot cleanse their inward nature. He can baptize you with water, but he cannot baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the baptism of John and his humility about his baptism's limitations are reminders of the limitations of all ministers. I'm forced to say with John, I baptize you with water, but only Jesus can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And I hope the Lord drives that home to your heart today. You mustn't put your hope either in the outward symbols of Christianity, important as they are, nor in the hands that administer them, important as they are. Yes, you should be baptized into Christ. You ought to feed on the Lord's Supper. You must commit yourself to the local church, but none of those things can place you into Christ. And none of them can place Christ's Spirit into you. Jesus And Jesus alone baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so your trust must rest on Jesus and Jesus alone. I hope that it does. So John's humility was actually fed by a realistic assessment of the nature and power of his baptism. Those have been the first two things we've thought about. The humility of John and the baptism of John. But now let's think in the third place about the baptism of Jesus. 
as we find it described there at the end of verse 16. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what can we say from that sentence about the baptism of Jesus? We've already spoken at some length about the fact that Jesus baptizes people with the Holy Spirit. That's what we've been talking about, right? But let's think a little bit more about what that means. What does it mean, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit? I think the simplest way to put it is that the Holy Spirit gives life. When a person is baptized with or in the Holy Spirit, new life is born into the soul, just as the rising from the baptismal waters pictures. To be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit means simply that the Holy Spirit comes to live in us so that a whole new way of life ensues. New spiritual abilities begin to sprout up like spring flowers. New desires after holiness arise. New hopes and aspirations and dreams are given birth. New moral norms take root in the conscience. We begin to long like newborn babies for the pure milk of the word. We begin to exhale prayers like newborn babies begin to breathe. Jesus baptizing us with the Holy Spirit is simply John's way of describing the life of the Holy Spirit come to live in us. We are immersed in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit immerses himself, comes to dwell within us. And it's a wonderful thing. When that happens, it's a wonderful thing to begin to live with the Holy Spirit and in the power of the Holy Spirit. The whole world seems different to us when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. I was listening to a preacher this week named Kenny McLeod, and he mentioned how when he was a new believer, everything seemed different to him. Even the fields around the home where he lived seemed new to him. Now that his eyes had been opened and he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And some of you can remember what that was like in the beginning days of your own walk with the Lord. It was like someone had flipped the light switch on when you became a Christian. And all of a sudden, things that never made sense before began to make sense. Or things that you never noticed or saw the beauty in before began to be beautiful in your eyes. Things that you once scarcely noticed. Maybe the leaves on the trees... Maybe the delight of a newborn baby. Maybe the beauty, beauty of poetry or song. Maybe certain passages or stories in the Bible. All of a sudden, all sorts of things came to life for you. It wasn't really that they came to life. It was that you came to life. Your eyes were opened. Your heart was changed. All of a sudden, you were alive to God. And most of all, when you come alive to God, God himself and his son and his bride, the church, all of a sudden became the most important, most delightful things in the world to you. John couldn't affect this kind of life, could he? No matter how many times he baptized you. He simply baptized with water. He simply administered the symbol. But Jesus came to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. To immerse us in a new spiritual world. And make us alive to God. And alive forevermore. That's what he's speaking about here. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Has that happened to you? 
Has Jesus immersed you into a whole new spiritual existence? Now, I know that sometimes the world and the flesh and the devil can have a deadening effect on our souls so that sometimes we feel more or less alive than at other times. So I'm not asking how you feel this morning. I'm simply asking, can you say, yes, I have truly met with this Jesus and he has baptized me with the Holy Spirit so that I know what it is to be truly alive? If so, rejoice. And if not, would you run to Jesus asking him to do what only he can do, asking him to baptize you with the Holy Spirit? I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire and fire he says what does it mean that jesus baptizes with fire well some bible students believe that this is a reference to the tongues of fire that settled on the christians when the holy spirit came that first pentecost and that's certainly a possibility Others believe that the fire here is simply another way of describing the new life and passion that comes when Jesus places the Holy Spirit within us. And that's a real possibility as well. The new life of the Spirit is something akin to having our souls set aflame, isn't it? But I think that perhaps John has something else in view when he says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And to understand what I believe John means for Jesus to baptize with fire, we need to read verses 16 and 17 together. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Do you see that verse 17 seems to follow up and define what is meant by fire at the end of verse 16? In verse 17, fire clearly symbolizes Christ's judgment, his wrath. Indeed, fire not only symbolizes Christ's wrath, but it describes it outright, doesn't it? For the judgment of God will involve the actual unquenchable fires of hell. Hell is a real place, raging with real fire, where real people who refuse to repent of their sins will someday really be cast. And John the Baptist tells us in verse 17 that Jesus will be the one to cast them there. And I believe that verse 16 is saying the same thing. Jesus will either baptize you with the Holy Spirit and all the wonderful life and fruit that comes with that, or he will immerse you in the flames of hell. Those are the two options that John gives to us. Those are the two options that the whole of Scripture gives to us. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now that doesn't sound like gentle Jesus, meek and mild, I understand. But for those who refuse to repent, John says it clearly. Jesus will burn up the chaff, verse 17, with unquenchable Fire, And I plead with each of you to take that seriously. For yourself and for those around you whom you've yet to speak about Jesus, hell is real. The unquenchable fire is real. 
And Jesus will baptize people into it if they refuse and rebel against him. Don't be among their number. Children who are sitting here this morning, don't don't be among their number. Teenagers, don't be among that number. Adults who have long been pretending Christianity perhaps, but who know inside that new life has never been born in your soul, don't be among that number. You needn't be. You needn't be baptized with the unquenchable fire. You needn't perish. Jesus would much rather baptize you with the Holy Spirit than with fire. He would much rather gather you as wheat into his barn than to throw you into the burn pile. The Bible tells us that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and that he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So we're back to the primary message of John the Baptist. Make straight the way of the Lord. Make room in your heart for Jesus. Indeed, give him the run of the place. Come to him, asking him to wash away your sins and to immerse you in the life of the Holy Spirit. As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire.